Hello there and welcome to the Bulletin of Spanish Studies podcast. This is episode three in a series about research journeys, where we're talking to academics from across the UK and Ireland about how they've moved between genre, country and time periods throughout their careers and what has driven these changes. You may want to check out our previous two episodes on the same theme. Now we're going to talk to Professor Frank Law from the University of Birmingham, whose interests span Hispanic narratives of the 20th century, in particular the avant-garde novel of the 1920s, the social novel of the 30s, and the literature of Republican exiles of the Spanish Civil War. Dr Fiona McIntosh from the University of Edinburgh tells us about how her initial studies of Argentine poet Alejandra Pizarnik led her to more interdisciplinary collaborations with colleagues in her institution. And Dr Tara Plunkett, Associate Professor at University College Dublin, talks about the themes of self-fashioning in her early research and the benefits and inspiration she draws from working in a large city with access to many different cultural institutions. We're also joined by Dr Eamon McCarthy, lecturer at the University of Glasgow and assistant editor at the Bulletin of Spanish Studies and Spanish Visual Studies, who specialises in questions of gender and sexuality with a particular focus on Argentine visual culture. He will tell us about the rewards and challenges of guest editing a special issue for an academic journal, in this case, ours. All three will be letting us in on their try-this-at-home research secrets and how they clear their minds and overcome the fear of the blank page. Professor Frank Loch, Professor of Hispanic Studies and Head of the Department of Modern Languages at the University of Birmingham, has joined us for a chat. Welcome, Frank. Thank you. So you've published extensively in the 20th century Hispanic narrative, in particular the avant-garde novel of the 1920s, the social novel of the 30s and the literature of Republican exiles of the Spanish Civil War. Can you give me a flavour of your research journey, so where you started and how that's taken you to where you are now? Okay, I suppose it's one of these kind of paths where at various points I felt I've ended up doing very different things, but they've all been kind of connected in one way or another, because one kind of area of research has always led me into another. And as the years go on, you suddenly realise that very often you're coming back to your starting point and, and, and viewing things differently. Um, I began working on uh, the Spanish novelist Ramon Jotasender. Um I'd come across him, I, I did my undergraduate studies in the 1970s, and I came across Sender in one of my final year modules, and I thought this would be a good subject for a dissertation. Um, but I found that while everybody, that there were a lot of histories of Spanish literature that would tell you that Sender was one of the most significant novelists of the 20th century, and yet I could find very little on him. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't do my dissertation on them. And when I decided to do my PhD, I thought that's a perfect uh, subject. So I began to work on Sender and ended up focusing on his early novels simply because they were very hard to get hold of and most of the views that people seem to have of them were that they were written in the 1930s in a very highly political context and they were just propaganda Mm -hmm. literature for the Communist Party or the anarchist groups. Uh, I got my, my hands on one or two of them and I thought, that doesn't sound right. So... My initial interest was really in trying to think of these as pieces of literature rather than pieces of propaganda. Mm. Um, but I'd always had an interest in, in philosophy, and what I found that in, in Sender's novels was that kind of very significant kind of philosophical element. So in the end, my thesis was really about reading his early novels 
which were, were about the political context, about anarchism and communism, but reading them through the philosophy of Schopenhauer mm. and how he used Schopenhauer to create uh, an idea of an ethics of good and bad, which he could then apply to uh, the political context in Spain. Yeah. And the obvious next step from that was then to look at what happened to Sinder when he went into exile. Yeah. Uh, and that kind of started a, a kind of a track where I, I was continuing to work on Sender, but I was also looking at exile literature more generally. Yeah. But there also came a point when, in the process of doing my research on the social and political literature of the 1930s, uh, I kept coming across references to avant-garde narrative. Mm-hmm. And I remember trying reading some of these avant-garde novels from the 1920s and just thinking, I don't get this. I really don't get this. I had read um, so avant-garde literature in, or narrative um, in English and, and some in French, uh, like Proust and mm-hmm. Joyce, and you know, I could kind of understand, get that. I just couldn't see how this, the Spanish fitted into that. So I, I abandoned it for a long time. And eventually, at some point, I had all these books on my shelf and I thought, I either have to do something with these or I just get rid of them. And going back to read them 10, 12 years later, all of a sudden they meant something different. Mm -hmm. And I just thought it was an interesting exercise to see how the avant-garde literature of the 1920s and 30s sat alongside the political literature. Uh, and, and that's why I kind of became engaged in that. So they've been haunting you sort of ever since and you were determined to solve well, they that were, riddle they, at They some were haunting point. me because the books were all sitting on my bookcase and they were, they were taking <laughs> up space. Taunting you more? They were taking up space. Yeah, absolutely. And it was a bit of a challenge, really. But it, it's, it's, I think I, I, even I was a little bit surprised at just how differently I read them 12 years later or 10 years, 12 years later. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what you're working on now, I mean... Uh, Recently in the journal, you had you were writing about Felix Berto Hernández from Uruguay. Yes. Isn't that right? So what sort of, is that where you are at the minute? Or are you looking at other authors or what's... No, my work is mainly in 20th century Spanish literature. And on the odd occasion, I've kind of branched out and done something slightly different. Yeah. Um, I, I, came, I came across Felix Berto Hernández almost by accident uh, when... I happened to be working on avant-garde literature, the Spanish avant-garde. It was one of these cases where just talking to two or three people over a very short period of time, the name kept coming up. And I'm thinking, well, he's a Uruguayan short story writer. Doesn't really connect with what I'm doing. But I went on holiday one year, found a book of his short stories that had just been published. It was a sign. Read, well, that's what I thought. And I read the stories and I thought, do you know what, this is... Kind of that I could see connections with um, the work I'd done on Benjamin Harness and the Spanish avant-garde, um, and I I just kind of it was a bit of a sideline I suppose. But over a, several years, I read quite a bit on Felix Berto, and I published a few articles um, on him. And the the article that you just kind of referred to was something that it's been sitting there for a long time. I, I gave a conference paper on it quite some time ago. And I always thought I really wanted to return to it and and um, and, and work it up into a proper article. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's effectively that's what, happened. what happened. So how important do you think it is when you 
pick up these wee nuggets when you're out and about when you're on holidays and you see a book and you think that's interesting or you've read some avant-garde novels and you sort of have them in the back of your head how important is it to just be open to letting these things come back and make their way into your research or send you down a different path than maybe you started on do you think that's well I, I think you have to be and I, I think that's where research gets really interesting and exciting um, you really can't plan you can have a project and you can decide that you know there are places you want to go with a certain project um, but you, you have to be reading other things and talking to other people and you know sometimes it's just serendipity things just kind of fall into place and and it kind of makes sense to do something um, I suppose it's one of the things that we always say and I think most people would say to their postgraduate students you go to any postgraduate re-seminar that's on whether it's you think it's in your area or not because the chances are there'll be something there mm-hmm. and it may not be the topic it may be the approach that's taken to the topic how, how someone engages with their text engages with their research and I think you can always learn something and, and the more open you are I think ultimately the richer your, your research becomes mm-hmm. I think it as I say, most of my work has been in 20th century Spanish literature, but I've worked on Felizberto Hernández, a Uruguayan short story writer. I published something on uh, José Saramago, the Portuguese novelist, and I've published one article on cinema. <clears throat> and these these were things that made sense at the time because of connections, because of things I was picking up. Um, they're not m- part of my mainstream research, but I, I think they inevitably have an influence on it as well because they do make you think differently and think about different things and you can't then unthink that mm-hmm. and it will eventually have a an impact on what you want to do and, and what you consider to be your mainstream research and also i suppose in a way it gives you maybe a break from sort of always working on the same thing that you kind of branch off for a wee while and then it stimulates ideas and then you come back so it's nice to have a fresh perspective yes it can it a, can be very refreshing yeah actually uh, to do that in uh, a bit of a busman's holiday I, <laughs> <laughs> I imagine so okay um what sort of advice would you have for early career researchers people coming into it at this point anything you would say to them um i suppose two things try not to be too ambitious to begin with if you're fortunate enough to get on a, a kind of career track where you, the research becomes part of uh, the work that you do, you've got plenty of time to do all sorts of things. Uh, and I think in the first instance, having a sense of a project that is manageable. And I think that, that that's actually quite difficult when you move from being an undergraduate to a postgraduate because you move from writing kind of reasonably small essays or dissertations to a a PhD and, and you, you think you can fit so much in but I think the same kind of mechanisms apply to what many people probably told us undergraduates that's a great idea but it's far too much for an essay and I think you can say the same for a PhD there's a whole range of things that you could put into a PhD but you cannot put them all in and not to be concerned that you've done three months of research on a particular area and it becomes a minor part of the PhD because the rest of the PhD will also benefit mm-hmm. from that if it's there. So I, the first thing I say is don't be too ambitious. Mm-hmm. And then the second thing would be be open. Mm-hmm. Let the research lead where you're going rather than 
attack, attack your research with some preconceived ideas. So you've got an idea, I want to do this kind of work on this writer because I want to show this X, Y or Z. And you you think you've half worked out the conclusions in your your head. And to some degree, we, we have to have that sense of direction in order to undertake the research. But I think when you start to undertake it, you then have to be completely open and be prepared to say, actually, this is going to be very different from what I started mm-hmm. because that's where the research has taken me. At the moment, in a sense, that's what happened with me with Sender. I started to work on his post-Civil War novels, um, and thinking about almost in terms of magical realism. And after about six months of talking to my supervisor, I completely shifted. I, I, instead of his post-Civil War novels, I was looking at his pre-Civil War novels. Instead of thinking about issues to do with fantasy and magical realism, I'm looking at politics and philosophy. Mm-hmm. And it's important not to be afraid to sort of take that step and do yes. feel that you're constrained by where you started. Yes. Good advice. Okay. The, the one thing that we're asking everyone today is a try-this-at-home tip. So what works for you when you sit down to research? Do you have any rituals? Do you have to play the piano for 10 minutes? Or do you <laughs> do 10 star jumps? What is it? Or do you just fire up your computer? What do you do? I like to have a tidy desk. Mm. And like, I think my office at home and my office at work will get increasingly untidy as the weeks go by. And I can cope with that and I can work with that for quite a while. But I always feel that if, when I'm really ready to sit down and, and I know I've got to write something fairly substantial and this is for the time I'll go, the, the first thing I do is tidy up. Yeah, clear the decks. I clear the decks. And, and it's almost mind. like, well, I suppose it's getting distractions away from from me on the desk and really only have on the desk what I what I need. Uh-huh. And that means I can I can focus. Excellent. That seems like a very sensible tip. Well, thank you very much, Frank. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for sharing all your knowledge with us today. You're welcome. Thank you. We welcome Dr. Fiona McIntosh, Senior Lecturer in Latin American Literature at the University of Edinburgh. Hi, Fiona. Hi, Gemma. You have an extensive list of research interests and publications, mostly focused around 20th century and contemporary Latin American prose and poetry, particularly of the Southern Cone and with a focus on women's writing. This includes Argentine poets Alejandra Pizarnik and Silvina Ocampo, and more recently, Claudia Pinedo. Can you talk us through this research journey? Yeah, um, I, I started off uh, working on Alejandra Pizarnik just because one day someone introduced me to her poetry and I really, really, really liked it. Um, and But at the same time, I was also working quite a bit on short stories um, and was struck by the fact that the, the kind of canon of short story writers was very male-dominated, you know, as an undergraduate study, mm-hmm. Cortázar, Borges, etc. Um, so I was a bit intrigued to know whether there were any women writers of the fantastic out there. Um, and then, of course, I got introduced to Silvina Ocampo and um, found, curiously, quite a lot of coincidences in in her work and that of Pisarnik, although they're working in very different media. Um, though, of course, Silvina Ocampo is also a poet. So I started looking at themes that they had in common, and, and, and one of those in particular was the theme of childhood and how they both approached childhood. So... My PhD thesis ended up being on precisely that topic on childhood in the works of these two writers. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And as often happens in academia, once you've done your PhD on something, you then start publishing on those authors. Um, and people say, oh, you've worked on Peace and Nick, would you like to contribute an article or do a do a presentation on one of those authors so I actually ended up working on those authors for quite a bit longer after my PhD and at a certain point I said I need a change yeah. um, but I really enjoy working with women's writing so I turned at that point to contemporary novels um, and at the, at the moment I'm working on um, a book on Claudia Pinedo's novels and in fact we had her over to um, Edinburgh University in June this year as, as part of our annual um, Latin American colloquium so mm -hmm. it was good to actually have her here and, and get her to talk to us about her work. Yeah that gives everything a sort of another facet when you can when you're working in living authors and you can bring them over and talk to them and learn new things that That's keeps right. things interesting absolutely. Okay and so where do you get your ideas when you are coming up with research topics is it through conferences is it through other publications that you've read is it from other people outside hispanism what what do you draw from well lots of things really i mean a lot talking to colleagues in other disciplines um uh the way things are set up in our school in edinburgh it's very easy to have conversations across disciplines i've got colleagues in edinburgh college of art for instance at the moment who I'm talking to about potential future research projects. I also like looking at, um, I get lots of journal tables of contents um, sent by email, and that's useful because you can kind of keep up with what's on, going on in the field. Um, and the same with conference programs, even if you can't necessarily get to all the conferences you'd like to go to, at least you can see what other people are working on and, and you know, what themes are kind of current. Mm. Um, and also a lot of, a lot of things come through serendipity either through browsing in the library and just finding books by authors that you've not heard of before or people recommending books uh, particularly by new authors and I like doing book clubs poetry reading groups and so on and that kind of thing brings so many new ideas and, and new texts Mm -hmm. So it's it's really exciting to do that and keep exploring. Yeah, and very fruitful from the signs of it. And what do you think, you know, in terms of getting research out there and, and where you go for research, how do you how does that work for you? I suppose most of what I would consult would be journal articles. Um because of receiving tables of contents by email, then I'm aware of things and often I would I would say every time I get a table of contents, there's usually be one or two articles. I think, oh, that's interesting, or that's related to something I do, or that's related to something a colleague of mine does, and I'd like them to know about this research. So I would typically download one or two every time I get sent that. Um, and and a lot of web searching mm -hmm. as well. Um, yeah, yeah, that sounds like a good way of staying current. And you mentioned that you're in contact with colleagues in the School of Art. What should we expect to see from you next? Is it going to be something a little different from what you've been working on so far? I think at the moment I'm I'm sticking with uh, trying to finish the Claudia Pinheiro um, book. Um, as you know, with, with research, things take their time. Um, but yeah, actually the, with the colleague in the um, Edinburgh School of Art, it's actually we're looking to do joint teaching rather than research specifically. Ah. Um, but Excellent. I'm not going to say more about that at this point. <laughs> ah, da, da, da. Okay, so one thing that we're asking everybody today is uh, try this at home. Do you have any tried and tested methods when it comes to your research? How do you kick off? Do you have any quirky habits or anything that you can share with us? 
I I would say rather than try it at home, try it anywhere other than home and indeed anywhere other than the office because those are the two places where when I'm doing research, I actually find it really hard to focus and to concentrate and be productive. I find it much better to get to a neutral space, preferably one with a bit of background noise but not too much. So take my laptop to a cafe or somewhere like that where I've only got my laptop and me and no papers, no other distractions um, no and emails. Actually, yes, exactly. <laughs> not being interrupted by emails or seeing that the f- you know the carpet needs hoovering if I'm at home, um, and actually just to then focus on getting ideas down, not worrying too much about having books and papers with me to put fo- footnotes in and things, but actually just you know brainstorm ideas in that way. So that that would be my tip for getting something going. Yeah. But then in later stages of the process, I find we have just right sessions. Um, in the university where people can sign up and take their laptop and all be working together in a room with structured coffee breaks and structured um and crucially no wi-fi and no wi-fi yeah um and that's that's also a good way to focus and be productive excellent well thank you very much for sharing that and thank you for talking to us today fiona okay good all the best <laughs> bye Dr. Tara Plunkett, Assistant Professor in the School of Languages, Cultures and Linguistics in University College Dublin, is here with us. You're interested in surrealism and you focused on canonical Spanish figures including Federico García Lorca and Rafael Alberti, but you're also interested in less well-known painters including Remedios Barro and Leonor Carrington. Can you give us an outline of your research trajectory? Um, So my research originated with the idea of self-fashioning within the surrealist aesthetic and how different artists and poets either painted or wrote an image of themselves using surrealism. Um, What's really interesting about the four artists that you mentioned is that each of them used image and text. I wouldn't say an equal measure, but a lot of people don't know Rafael Alberti started out as a painter before he turned to poetry. Um, It was on the death of his father that he realised that he couldn't He couldn't use painting to articulate the depth of his emotion and turn to poetry. Um, Federico García Lorca equally had this really wonderful period in which he had this um, torrid personal and emotional relationship with Dali. Um, During that period, Dali experimented with texts. Lorca experimented with imagery. Um, So in the book that I'm working on, at the moment, it's looking at how all four artists use the surrealist aesthetic in works of self-fashioning and through that have emerged themes such as, um, uh, the, for example, Remedios Varo will use the self-portrait figure um, in images of the journey. She may flood a canvas with images of her own face. Garcia Lorca and Alberti, meanwhile, in their poetry, will disintegrate the self in order to achieve a catharsis. So I think there's really interesting synergies in how the same motifs appear in image and text by men and women um, and across a disparate chronology and geography as well. Fantastic. So you're here today as part of the AHRC network on women and religion in Hispanism in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. Can you sort of, how does that inspire you, that sort of collaboration or network? Um, and, and what else is it that you draw inspiration from? Well, the wonderful thing about this network is that I'm returning to Queen's where I did my doctoral studies. Um, the last time I saw some of the participants in this network was for a different event that Ricky Ora and I put on together about women artists and surrealism, specifically focused on Remedios Vado. Um, that led to a special edition of the Bulletin of Spanish Studies, Um, which drew up some really interesting ideas, particularly Roberta Quanz, for example, um, wrote a wonderful article on Ángeles Santos, who's a very 
marginal painter and who went through a really difficult trajectory. Um, I think that working on fine art, one of the most interesting things for me is to work with artists and work with museums. Um, just before I left Queen's, I had the wonderful opportunity to curate an exhibition here, working with local Belfast artists and how they had been inspired by works by uh, female painters such as Maruja Mayo, uh, Leonora Carrington and Remedios Faro. And since being in Dublin, we've had the chance to work with the Irish Museum of Modern Art and with the Hugh Lane Gallery. Um, most recently in Buenos Aires, um, I was able to meet some artists working out there. So I think if you're someone who's studying fine art and writing about fine art, then we should also work with practitioners and museums, curators, uh, just to get a more holistic approach um, to the dissemination and the critique of the works. Absolutely. And, and I was sort of interested in exploring that a wee bit more and how you disseminate your research. I suppose it is a bit different whenever you can deal with art galleries and you can deal with living artists. How do you disseminate that research and how do you encourage your students to approach it? Um, that's one of the wonderful things about working in Dublin. Um, in particular, I'm currently teaching a course on surrealism in art and literature. Um, the students of Leonora Carrington, I can show them the, uh, the exhibition catalogue of the wonderful retrospective that the Irish Museum of Modern Art did on Leonora um, in 2014. Um, I also can encourage them to go to the Tate Modern, for example, because many of the works that we look at, including photographs of the first international surrealist exhibition in 1936, some of those works are still there. Um, we also were able to invite some students from the Drama Society in UCD to create their own Dada performance in celebration of the centenary of the first Cabaret Voltaire performance of Elephant in Caravana. I could not have imagined how the students would take that original nonsense text and do their own performance of it, which involved an element of drag. I will not even try to explain that. So I think sounds amazing. Yeah, living in such a large city with so many cultural institutions means that we can get the students involved in those. Fabulous. You touched on that there's a new book out there or that you're working on something. What is it that we should expect to see from you? Can you give us a bit more detail? Sure. So I have currently just finished an article on Salvador Dali and on one of his texts, San Sebastian. Um, it's one of the first texts where he talks about his aesthetic methodology of uh, Santa Objetividad or Holy Objectivity. Um, and I'm also currently working on a book that traces the genealogy of surrealism in works by García Lorca, Rafael Alberti, Remedios Varo and Leonora Carrington, so which is on desire and self-fashioning in uh, Hispanic surrealism. Fantastic. I should look forward to seeing that. One of the things we've been asking everyone today is try this at home. So what is it that works for you when it comes to research? Uh, do you sing out loud? Do you turn off emails? Do you run around in circles or... What is it? Is there something particular that you do that we um, can learn from? I have just recently had the great fortune to move to a really beautiful part of Dublin. So I have a gorgeous long walk by the river every morning on my way into work. So it's a combination of the gorgeous long walk and a specific selection of music. Ah, yes. Currently interested in an Irish band called Lancome and they have some really beautiful instrumental. So if I walk to work along the river listening to that, then that puts me in the right mood for it. Absolutely. Great tips. Okay, well, thank you very much, Tara. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks very much for having me. Dr. Eamon McCarthy, lecturer at Glasgow University and assistant editor at the Bulletin of Spanish Studies and Spanish Visual Studies, now takes a seat at the table. Eamon, your research lies in questions of gender and sexuality with a particular focus on Argentine visual culture. In 2018, you guest edited a special issue for the Bulletin of Spanish Studies. 
That was issue five of that year, Out of the Ordinary, Woman of the Spanish Avant-Garde. Can you talk us through this process? So our special issue really began with a colloquium here at Queen's where I was one of the invited speakers to come along and talk about my research. A group of us who attended that colloquium got together and thought that we would like to publish the papers because they all focused on women artists of the Spanish avant-garde. So there was already a coherent intellectual theme running through all of the presentations. So after the collo- shortly after the colloquium, Roberta Quance and I decided to put together a proposal for a special issue of a journal, and we chose the Bulletin of Spanish Studies. And how did you decide who you'd like to contribute? Was it all the people that were at the colloquium? Well, initially, yes. So at the colloquium, I think there were a few more speakers than final number of articles in the bulletin. So a couple of the speakers weren't able to turn their presentations into papers for various reasons and because the papers were being published and promised elsewhere. So we ended up with a slightly smaller selection of the papers uh, from the colloquium that we wanted to put together as a special issue. And the reason we chose the bulletin was because of the flexibility over word limit. So some of our speakers, myself included, were working on two different women artists and comparing their works and to try and do that in a sort of shorter number of words was more difficult so the flexible word limit of 10 to 12,000 words of the bulletin really appealed to us so that's why we decided to send our proposal to the bulletin. Okay and how did you pitch it to the journal after that? Well that was a long process for us. So obviously we had had the colloquium already. We knew the content of a lot of the papers, which was really important because that allowed us to think carefully about the order in which they would be published, how we would begin to think about and conceive an introduction to the issue, which then allowed us to craft a proposal that ended up being very, very close to what was in the end the final product. So I think the fact that we had done a lot of preparatory work before we came to submit the proposal meant that the proposal went through relatively quickly and without any questions about sense of coherence of the issue or about questions over any of the individual contributions. Sort of from that point onwards, it's down to editing and production, the timekeeping and style that comes from the journal itself. Is this easy to keep to or what advice would you have for other people thinking of guest editing a special issue? So we were quite lucky in that, as I said, the papers already existed as presentations. So some of the groundwork had been done for the articles. Also in coming up with the timeline, the bulletin were excellent at giving us a very clear sense of deadlines. So we had an estimated date of publication Working back from that, you were able to give us a sense of when the last possible moment the articles could be submitted. We then created our own timeline outside of that, allowing us a generous margin so that if people did miss our initial date, that we were able to offer some flexibility without putting the date of publication in jeopardy. So I think it's all about careful planning and mapping out a realistic timeline with plenty of margin for error in it. Sounds very wise. Okay, and how would you say that the overall project benefited your own research? I mean, obviously you had an article, you had images of the Mujer Moderna in the works of Maruja Mayo and Nora Borges, 
but how else do you think it benefited your own research? So in terms of putting my own work into the bigger picture of the avant-garde, it really, really helped because not only as the editor, but as a speaker at the colloquium, I was able to see and hear about the works of a lot of different women. So in the footnotes of the article, I was already finding myself referring to things that other people had said at the colloquium, which eventually became parts of their articles. So if you like, there was a natural sense of cross-referencing across within the issue, simply because we'd had that opportunity to meet together and talk. Obviously, as an editor of the issue, I was also able to read all of the articles at various different stages, so even from some kind of very early draft form. So as part of that process, I was able to flag up to different contributors some possible links between their articles. So that meant that when it came to adding in cross-references and notes at the end, a lot of contributors had already done that because we had flagged it up to them at a very early stage. Mm-hmm. And that can make the whole thing much stronger. Okay, and if you were going to do something like this again, is there anything you would do differently? So I think for us, because we were all working on women artists, one of the big issues, if you like, and I think this is always going to be an issue, was the question of images. So we were obviously able to include a number of images within the bulletin, which is brilliant, and the fact that online they're available in colour is even better. But some of the artists who were included in the issue we find it very, very difficult to get rights for the works of those artists. So it means that within the issue, some of the artists that we deal with, their works aren't reproduced in the issue. And I think think that's a shame, but it's almost unavoidable because of the question of image rights. So I think if I was going to give anyone advice, I would suggest that they would seek the rights and give a lot of thought to the number of images they might include in the issue. I would certainly echo that from my experience as well. Okay, thank you very much for sharing your experience, Eamon. And I have now I wanted to ask you for our Try This at Home section. Could you give us an idea about how you start your research? Do you have any wacky rituals or, or what would you say is a surefire winner for you when you sit down? So I think it's really much more difficult during term time to find the time to do anything. Um, but ways in which I manage during term time are I try try not to identify an entire research day because that can seem overwhelming sometimes. So I allow myself three hours one morning and I just block those off and I don't even open my email and I just get straight in and work on research for those three hours and then can turn my attention to the kind of more day-to-day parts of the job. Then outside of the teaching period... I often find it nice to indulge myself quite a bit and perhaps start the day with a nice coffee and croissant out of the office or out of my house and start with some gentle reading. And then by around 10 or 10.30 in the morning, I sit down and then start writing because you feel that you've already treated yourself and can kind of started the day slowly so you can get into some more serious work for a few hours after that you get into the zone once you've had that little indulgence that sounds like a great way to start it and thank you very much we really appreciate you talking to us thank you thanks Gemma.